0: How can you even defend a position you believe blindly or never even truly studied? Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses are not Christians. They believe in an entirely different Jesus, a Jesus that never even existed. Is your life here on earth meaningless and purposeless? Ask Bertrand Russell. He says that our existence here is pitiless indifference. Being in a Christian home makes your kids no more a Christian than them standing in the garage makes them a car. They need to hear the gospel of Christ and receive the free gift of salvation personally. Welcome to Contending for Christ Apologetics, where we contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. This episode is actually part of a four-part series out of my book that I publish, Investigating Lordship Salvation. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking into four passages that seem to have been misinterpreted and misapplied by many people out there. We're going to see these passages are misunderstood and actually irreconcilable with the grace-based salvation which requires works to be evident to be a Christian or a genuine Christian. Through this four-part series, it's my hope and my prayer that we'll all see that the typical Reformed teaching of these passages are in fact in conflict with sola fide and sola gratia and not the correct interpretation. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at Jesus' saying, Jesus's parable, if you will, that he mentioned in the Garden of Gethsemane before his rest on that night. It's the parable of the vine. In John chapter 15, verse 1 through 11, we're familiar with the figure of speech or the phrase or the illustration that Jesus uses that, I am the vine and you are the branches. You see, I've been told from one individual specifically who actually interpreted the passage as meaning that a Christian will bear fruit as the orthodox teaching. And thus, this is the reason why the individual holds to the interpretation that Jesus is saying here that a Christian will bear fruit, being the fact that it's orthodox teaching. That's why it's held to as the belief of this individual. But does orthodoxy really prove accuracy. For a long time, before the Reformation period, it was actually commonly held that baptism was a prerequisite for eternal life. See, this was before the Reformers. Martin Luther, though admired for his works on rejecting the Catholic Church, continued the belief that baptism was a prerequisite for eternal life. Even when as far as promoting the idea that, and I quote, "...the infant prior to baptism is possessed by the devil, and a child of sin and wrath, while baptism delivers him from the devil, making him a child of God. Before the sacrament is administered, the baptizer commands the unclean spirit to depart to make room for the Holy Spirit." So while this was an orthodox teaching within the church, it's still found to be unbiblical teaching. And it goes to show that the interpretation is not necessarily correct just because it's orthodox. Therefore, orthodoxy doesn't indicate accuracy, but orthodoxy simply reveals what is commonly held as the view. Nothing more. Simply agreeing to an interpretation due to orthodoxy really demonstrates indolence as a student of God's Word. And we talked a little bit about the fallacy of equivocation, And it's seen when one believes a word means the same thing each time it is used. This is a common reason for many people misinterpreting passages. In every language, context has to determine the interpretation of a statement, saying, or thought. Suppose you found a letter. And in the letter you were reading that the author wrote, That was the largest trunk I've ever seen. What image would you have in mind? Would you picture the trunk of a vehicle? What about a trunk that you store clothes or belongings inside? What about a tree trunk? Or would you think about an elephant's trunk? You probably would have no idea what trunk was actually being referenced, and you can make a guess. You could maybe remove the possibility of this being an elephant's trunk, because it's not every day that one sees an elephant, at least not in America. Now suppose in the letter that you read the author was explaining the trip to the zoo. Now you have a little more background as to what possibly could have been referenced, but it still could be either of the four. But suppose you read the author. The author was explaining his discussion with an elephant trainer who was explaining the purpose, function, and anatomy of Bilbo the elephant in his trunk. Now you could actually understand that the trunk being referenced in the letter is relation to Bilbo the elephant's trunk. You see, you were able to determine the proper meaning of the word trunk because of context clues. First, you determined all possible meanings of the word trunk. You discovered the audience present within the letter, namely the elephant trainer. And by determining the audience and the topic of discussion, you're able to identify and determine the appropriate meaning of the word trunk with all the different meanings. Context clues are very important in understanding the correct interpretation of a homonym. And this is just one example. It's the same process necessary to accurately and appropriately exegete scripture. 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 However, many times one focuses on a single meaning of a word instead of the possible range of meanings. And then they apply that one meaning to all the uses of the word throughout scripture. You see, one of the most common misuses of homonyms in scripture is the word fire is commonly misrepresented and misinterpreted as always in reference to hell or the lake of fire. But if you actually study the word fire, it can mean many different things. Apart from hell, fire can be symbolic of God's physical destruction, his judgment, or his purification process for the refining fire. Understanding this principle of interpretation, we're gonna actually look at or talk about John chapter 15. See, the Apostle John is the only one who records this account, so we have the full picture without having to reference another gospel writer. So let's paint the background of the scene. It's nighttime. After Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in John 13, Judas Iscariot has departed to fulfill the sovereign work of God in betraying Jesus. Then we see the conjunctive adverb, therefore. And remember, anytime you see the word or read the word therefore, always ask yourself, what is the therefore therefore. So once Judas departs, only the apostles, the true believers, remain with Jesus Christ. And Jesus remarks, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him in John thirteen thirty one. There's no doubt as to who Jesus is speaking to at this moment, as he calls them little children in thirteen thirty three, which is a common reference to the children of God seen in John one twelve. Jesus's conversation with the Apostles Actually begins in john thirteen thirty one but doesn't even end until John eighteen one when they depart for the Garden of Gethsemane and so this conversation Jesus is having takes place over five chapters almost and in john fifteen one Jesus is uses Jesus uses the physical world to make a spiritual application, specifically a grapevine before going into the illustration. He actually explains two of his symbols. He says, Jesus is the vine, and the Father is the gardener. You see, the common lordship view on this passage is that the branches that don't abide in Jesus Christ, seeing as they are burned in the fire, a euphemism of hell, were never genuinely saved. That's interpreted because Jesus' words in verse 6, that if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And by this, Calvinists reason that Jesus is stating that an individual is cast into hell, i.e., fire, should they not abide in the vine, proving themselves as false professors who were never genuinely saved. And this Calvinistic lordship view is actually coupled with verse 16 when Jesus said, I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain taught that if a believer is genuinely saved, he has no choice but to continue to abide and do good works, proclaiming the evidence of their salvation. So the assurance is yet again placed upon the necessity of performing works by abiding in Jesus Christ as a litmus test of true conversion through perseverance. This can't be the proper interpretation of Jesus' word for numerous reasons here. As we've already identified, his audience is the Apostles minus Judas Iscariot. He's speaking to believers. In verse 5, Jesus clearly points out that the branches he's speaking of in verse 6 are the apostles. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Should one interpret this passage as a branch that does not abide in Jesus Christ is cast off into hell? Would promote the doctrine that one can lose their salvation, which is found nowhere in Scripture. So what is the main point of this passage? Abiding in Jesus Christ, that's the main point. The word abide, the Greek word meno, is used 12 times in this passage in verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, 11, and 16. Abiding brings the idea of dwelling with or fellowshipping or this communal type relationship And Jesus here is admonishing the apostles to dwell with and maintain fellowship and communal relationship with Him. He explains, If they are obedient to His commandments, they will abide in His love, verse 10. And that if they abide in Him, they will bring forth much fruit, verse 5a. Jesus even goes so far as to say if the apostles do not abide in Jesus, they can do nothing, 5b. Finally, Unbelievers are never mentioned as being able to abide in Jesus without first having saving faith. Unbelievers are unreconciled to God, and apart from God's fellowship, they are standing as enemies, as Paul tells us in Romans 5.10 and Colossians 1.21. Two verses have to be dealt with to maintain a true interpretation. Verse 2 every branch in me that beareth not forth fruit he taketh away." In the aforementioned verse 6, what's interesting about verse 2 are four letters, two words, in me. Every branch in me is determined that the branches Jesus is referring to are the believing saved apostles with eternal life. And there in verse 2 he's saying it is possible For a believing apostle to be taken away. So, what does he mean by the phrase taketh away? It's unfortunate that many believe this phrase, speaking of an individual that does not bear fruit, is cast off into hell, either not being able to work for salvation or not producing fruit as the evidence of genuine salvation. But if Jesus is speaking to the 11 apostles, has assured them that they are clean. Then that interpretation doesn't hold theological water. Another interpretation of take it away is actually to prop up. The Greek word here for taketh away arrow can mean to lift up or elevate. It's doctor John Nimila who reveals an agricultural fact through the writings and records of Pliny the Younger. And Pliny the Younger describes a common practice in the first centuries that vine dressers would actually prop up unfruitful branches onto stones to hold them above the ground, so that they would bear grapes the next year. This is written in extra-biblical writings of a typical agricultural process near this area. Applying to believers, Jesus' phrase was assurance to them that when they needed support, when they had doubts, trials, and persecutions, they would be elevated, propped up, assisted by God to be able to bear the fruit they've been called to bear. It's during these troublesome times, this was God's message of mercy, not judgment. And finally, we arrive to verse six, in reference to the branches being thrown into the fire. Now, if we go back to the illustration of the letter written about a zoo, in The Visit and Bilbo the Elephant, we see that every word should be viewed from a contextual lens. If we argue that the fire is hell and the branches being thrown there are people who have not borne fruit, then we wrestle with this doctrine of losing salvation or maintaining salvation by our works, i.e. Lordship salvation. However, when we see other possible meanings for the word fire, that it may be a reference to God's physical judgment upon an individual or nation, in keeping with the viticultural illustration Jesus is using with the vine dressers and the vine, it's reported that the branches have dried up, not able to remain in the vine. and The branches are taken down and cast into fire and because they were no longer useful, burned up. In a similar analogy, it fits neatly in scripture where believers are admonished to be careful to maintain good works, Titus 3, eight to abide in the vine so as to be able to produce forth good fruit and good works john 15:4 and 5 and that our fruit bearing is to glorify our god in heaven john 15:8 however should a christian continually not abide in jesus christ not remain in fellowship and communion and become the prodigal god issues stern warnings here through fire of a judgment about the life ahead And this is actually referenced in Hebrews 10, 26, 27, James 1, 5, and 1 John 5, 16, and 17. So this illustration, I am the vine, you are the branches, has nothing to do with eternal life or the perseverance of genuine faith, but everything to do with an abiding, communal fellowship with God. Jesus encourages the apostles moments before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane of the way they can remain fruitful and joyful in the midst of their upcoming persecution and loss. The principle of abiding brings peace to the Christian that no matter what circumstances one is faced with, maintaining communion with Jesus Christ will allow for joy in the process of fruit bearing. Then people will be able to see our good works and glorify our God in heaven. Thanks for listening. We pray this ministry glorifies God and edifies you, the listener. For more great content, including videos, blogs, newsletters, and a free ebook, check out our website at c4capologetics.weekly.com. You can also email us at c4capologetics at gmail.com with questions or ideas for future episodes. We truly appreciate you. Please like, share, and comment on this episode, and don't forget to subscribe for future episode notifications. Thanks for checking in and remember to be bold and keep contending for Christ.